Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega, coming to you from an undisclosed location deep inside the interior of the Earth's crust, otherwise known as the Underground Bunker. We're kicking things off uh, with a great guest today, someone who is very important to the Bunker community. He escaped from Scientology in a very dramatic way. And in uh, Scientology, there's a special word for escaping. It's known as blowing. People who blow are hunted down by Scientology with what they call the blow drill. I'm not making this up. Usually it's successful and people are brought back uh, even multiple times. I, I talked to someone who was brought back five separate times before they realized that they were under no obligation to crawl back to this totalitarian organization. So when today's guest uh, not only blew, but then began leaking information, really amazing, crucial information that Scientology did not want public, he wanted it clear that he was never going back to Scientology. So he chose to call himself by the handle blown for good. Uh, and that is, of course, Mark Headley. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today from Colorado. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, you know, you're you're always one of our favorites, and I, I love talking to you because uh, you have a great way of expressing yourself. And, and I love checking in with you to see what you think about what, what's been going on lately in Scientology. And what I wanted to start out with you today is um, I was talking to somebody the other day who is suing Scientology and is not supposed to be talking to me, so I won't mention who they were. And they said, Tony, is it true that David Miscavige has really moved from California to Florida? And I said, yeah, his attorneys have have acknowledged it in a court paper. And uh, with the way that Dave shows up at these Friday graduations at the Fort Harrison Hotel, there's just no doubt but I still kind of have a hard time wrapping my head around what life must be like for David Miscavige at the flag land base, where he's actually staying, what his daily life is like, what it's like for the other people. I figured you would have a better understanding of that than most people. What do you think? Well, when we were at the Int base, I mean, I was there from 1990 to 2005, and I would say... David Miscavige, you probably threatened a few thousand times, <laughs> moving everything to Clearwater. Like he would, he would literally be, uh, we were supposed to get something done. Uh, there's like three months leading up to when it's supposed to get done. And, and most of the time, these items that we were supposed to complete would be like released at an event. And uh, invariably, we wouldn't make the date. And then he, we'd have a meeting and he would be like, I should just move all this to Clearwater, get rid of you guys, uh, move RTC to Clearwater, move all of Int or Gold to Clearwater. Like it was basically just like, we're get, we're get, we got to close this place down. And uh, I, I never heard that. I didn't realize he used to threaten that. Oh, yeah. It was a huge thing. It would be like, I could just, I would just declare this entire, I mean, there were, depending on what year it was, there was anybody anywhere from like, I don't know, five to 800 people there at the international headquarters in uh, right. Gilman Hot Springs, California. Um, but uh, yeah, he would, he would literally say, 
I'm going to declare you all suppressive and just start new in Clearwater. It'll be, it'll be more productive and less pain if I just get rid of all you guys or just close this place down and just start all over from scratch. And, um, and for the longest time, it was always kind of like an empty threat. Cause it'd be like, where are you, like, where are you going to go? Like, there's no, you don't have any, you know, there's nothing there for you. And then, you know, they built, uh, their, these offices. I can't, what was it called? I think it was called the WB. And that is this office, uh, that he had there in Clearwater, uh, in a building called the WB. And then the CMO CW, the, the Clearwater, uh, Commodore's messenger organization was also in that building. And that was kind of like, those are like his, um, his gophers or his, uh, his people that are like, uh, I don't know what you call it. People who get shit done for him. That's what, uh, the CMO is for. Isn't that David a Oscar couple Hamilton. of blocks? Isn't that a couple of blocks North of the Fort Harrison, just off Fort Harrison Avenue? Yeah, it's actually, side. there's a park. Um, that's kind of near there. I think it's caddy quarter from that building. There's a, there's a park, uh, that used to be, it used to be a drive-through restaurant called checkers. And, uh, and he didn't like, there was all sorts of people hanging out there on Friday and Saturday nights. Uh, and he didn't like that. Uh, and they could, he could see him from his office. So he had to, they had and to buy that checkers and turn it, <laughs> turn it into a park. <laughs> and if I remember correctly, WB stands for West Coast Building. Isn't that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and he um, – because I think when Marty told me about uh, the whole um, Nicole Kidman thing. Yeah. When, uh, when Miscavige did not like the fact that Tom Cruise was with, was with Mimi Rogers because of Mimi's dad, who was a squirrel. Yeah. And Greg Wilhair was working out of that office alongside of Marty. And Marty personally witnessed Wilhair telling Dave, well, you know, I'm auditing Tom and he's talking about this actress, Nicole. And Marty said what he personally saw was Miscavige telling Will here, do that, push that. You know, he wanted Will here in Tom's auditing to encourage the idea of dumping Mimi Rogers for Nicole Kidman. If I remember correctly, that's the location where that all went down was the that's West West Coast building, which is like between the Fort Harrison and the Sandcastle. Yes, that's exactly right. It's yeah, you're right. It's it's kind of uh, it might be a little teeny bit closer to the sandcastle, but yeah, it's basically right in the middle of those two. And and just just go back just to go back to something you said. How about that? Like in all of the people that we've heard of that have caused trouble, have we ever heard one peep from Mimi Rogers' dad? No. Like talking about talk about the like that could have been the worst call ever. Like if he was still with Mimi, can you imagine like the, the, the path that would have happened if he, they never would have stirred the pot with Mimi, then wrecked the Nicole thing, then totally wrecked the Katie thing. Like for someone who's cause over matter, G, matter, energy, space, and time, these uh, Tom and Dave can't seem to lock down a girl to save their life, man. <laughs> and, and the person, and for the record, the person we're speaking about is Phil Spickler. That that's who Mimi's father was, 
and, yeah. and he had he had a mission, I believe, in Palo Alto, somewhere around there. And then he had gone squirrel. And this is what concerned them so much about Mimi was that Phil was a squirrel. He he died in 2020. Uh, okay. but but you're right. There there were all those years where he could have said something about, you know, how Mimi was treated and everything. Yeah, no, but I mean literally. Um, they were worried about, I mean, he was, I think he had a mission. He owned a mission, her dad. And then he yeah. went, he just, when, uh, I, I want to say, I don't know, but I want to say probably whenever that mission holder conference went down or when Dave Miscavige started kind of putting the screws to these people who owned missions, um, he likely would have got out, you know, around that time or sometime thereafter. But, um. But yeah, he might have been the least of all of their problems compared to, um, well, it's always the dads now that you think about it. <laughs> it is the dad. Because, because um, Nicole's dad was a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist or something. Right. And um, and Katie's dad was a family lawyer, like a family attorney. Or who, who clearly plotted yeah, and organized her escape, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's always the dads. But- I think, I think Mimi's dad might have been the le- the lesser evil of the three dads, can, yeah. you know, in in the eyes of Scientology. But um, but yeah, how crazy is that? So yeah, so so. But my whole point was that whenever Dave would would say he's going to move to Clearwater, there was not there wasn't really a lot of stuff there. But then they built the WB, and then obviously they built the that giant. Um, what we always knew as the superpower building, which is also funny because it's, we couldn't call it the SP building, yeah. which is what in Scientology, what you would always, everything is abbreviation. So flag is FLB, the flag land base, the imp base is gold, which because golden era production was there or just int. Um, and so superpower building, that's a no brainer. That's the SP building, but you're like, oh, well, SP means something else in Scientology. It means a suppressive person. (laughs) So we can't call it the suppressive person building. So it was always a superpower building. But when we were building the, uh, when we were designing the superpower building, um, it used to look like a death. It used to look, it used to be called the death star. It was a giant black windows, black, everything. Oh, wow building oh yeah it, it looked like um they have a there's a building in um in memphis i think it's just called the pyramid um but it has a uh i don't remember it was probably some kind of event center or some kind of destination building but now it's the home of bass pro shops and uh there is a giant pyramid in downtown memphis and uh, if you go in there it's a bass pro shop so there's boats and fish and you know, shoes and sporting goods and stuff like that. Anyway, the superpower building looked like that. That's like one of the early designs. It just looked like a giant, maybe not a pyramid, maybe more like a, maybe like a, a, maybe a little more squarish or like an octagon, but it was, it literally looked like a black death star. Like if the death star was a land formation and not a, uh, not a, uh, uh, a, st- a spaceship that blew up planets anyway. So, um, and then it got redesigned to look what it is like now, but, uh, Dave had a whole wing when we were designing that building, his, he had a whole 
offices and a little apartment and all of the walls were like double thick concrete and soundproof. And so, you know, he could be yelling at people and none of the, uh, the people doing their superpower training would be able to hear him. Right. But, and, uh, and I, yeah, and, so, and, but and, when he was building, when we were designing that, then it was like, Oh, he's actually kind of like making a play. Like everything we had at the int base where he lived at the int base, he was building or designing to build in Florida. So it was like, Ooh, this is uh well, maybe he's had a long game in mind, you know? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. He has. And, and to be fair, um, at the int base, he has like a listening room, like a, like whatever the most expensive stereo system you've ever thought of. Um, just like multiply that by like maybe a hundred. So like maybe a two, three hundred thousand dollar stereo system to just right. to listen like there's not it's not like a theater it literally has one or two chairs in it for him and that's it that's the whole thing and he would listen to mixes that golden arab did and all this other stuff and then he has his office and then he has his apartment and and maybe a conference room and then some offices for like his his people like he might have let's say four or five people that are just always kind of traveling with him and he has that exact setup at the Int base. He has that exact setup in the UK. He has that exact setup in Los Angeles. He has that exact setup in Clearwater. He, I don't know if he has that in New York. He has, he kind of like commandeers offices when he got, when he went to New York, when oh, I was there. Okay. But, um, so he has a lot of places like if he needs, oh, and he has a, a very similar setup on the free winds. Uh, and that's another one. Like they have a, like there's a conference room and some offices behind it's called the green room behind the, uh, the theater at the uh, free winds, the cruise ship that they have. All right. And so he has a very similar setup there. So he has a lot of places. Like if, you know, if the feds are moving in, in LA, he can <laughs> zip off to Clearwater. If they're moving in in Clearwater, he could zip off to UK or so he has, and they, and they're, and they really are. Like whatever he has in one, if he really likes, let's say he really likes a certain kind of audio piece of audio equipment, like at this time, this is years and years ago. So it might be a digital to audio converter or a cassette player or a CD player or some kind of speakers. Then that exact thing is propagated to all the other offices. So they're pretty, they pretty much mirror each other in terms of their capabilities and uh, accommodations. But, um, but so, yeah. So if somebody told me now, like, yeah, he moved, it, it could be another one of those things. Like that's his place that he likes now. Right. And, and who knows he could be, <laughs> he could be threatening all those Clearwater guys. Like if you guys, you know, screw this up again, <laughs> I'm going to probably move back to gold, you know, like, just like right. it could be the, it could be the same thing no matter where he goes. That would be an interesting, you know, to compare, notes to the other people that were being threatened by Dave over the years of whatever he was going to do. Like, Oh yeah. He would always tell us the same thing. I'm going to, I'm going to move everything back to gold. If you guys don't mess, if you guys mess this up. Again. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, I remember when the, um, the flag, they call it the flag building now because they can't call it superpower building probably for the exact reason that you said SP. Yeah. So it's the flag building and um, about a, 
two years before it opened, I got a hold of the schematics and renderings and put them out at the Village Voice. Um, and I think, you know, I think 11 years is long enough for me now to say that I actually got those drawings from Andreas Heldahl Lund, my good friend in Norway. I don't know where he got them, but a uh, wonderful set of drawings and in schematics uh, showing all the different floors. And of course, the Space Age fifth floor that's for all the perceptic stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, the, it's, it was an interesting design because I think it's a seven-story building. But the sixth floor is basically just the running track. And it's got yeah. this massive dome that basically prevents there from being a seventh floor because it, it, the seventh floor then is just the corners around the sides of the dome. And yeah. one of and one of those corners, I believe it's the southwest corner, was Miscavige's offices. And yeah. uh, I saw there was a rendering of of several offices, and then there was a rendering of a bathroom, which I thought was interesting that we actually got to see Dave's bathroom. But I don't remember there being specifically like a bedroom. I'm sure they've got one in there by now. But um, you know, so I guess. Well, then also, he also had, I was told, like a double apartment where they'd knock the walls out over at the Hacienda. The Hacienda. Well, yeah. The Hacienda. That is his apartment in Clearwater was always the Hacienda. And that Hacienda um, also has a listening system there at the apartments. And what we but, mean by uh, that, the Hacienda is one of these apartment complexes in Florida. And I've been outside of it. If you look at it from the outside, it just looks like a, you know, very nothing special about it. You know, it looks like middle class kind of, you know, apartment complex. But they apparently had knocked out some walls to create some super special apartment for him inside. So I don't know if he's staying there. I think Mike has told me that he doesn't think so. But or if he's staying, he's literally staying in the flag building. And then I guess what he does, Mark, is he just walks across the air bridge to the Fort Harrison and just pops into the Friday night graduations. Yeah. Yeah. No, I could totally, I mean, that is also like, that's his Beatles moment when he goes to flag graduations. So that's when all the girls and guys are screaming and, Oh, Dave, Dave, like pretty much anywhere else he goes, he's nobody. But yeah. when he goes to flag graduation, he's like, you know, big man on campus. He really, is the uh you know the biggest thing since sliced bread and so i think he more than anything i think he loves that at flag that he's he's such a big deal and um you know people just salute him wherever he goes and uh you know whatever he says is uh, the gospel so i could totally see uh him living and working at that flag building and then you know zipping over to flag graduation and then he also at the base and this is and he could be doing the same thing at flag at the base for many years um i was actually on a night shift uh when i was in the manufacturing division and um so we would be we'd go to lunch at like you know 12 one o'clock in the morning sometimes we'd be out doing other things on the property at two or three o'clock in the morning and all the time we'd see David Miscavige going through people's offices and rummaging through his stuff. And in the middle of the night, 
And then um, it was, it was just kind of weird. And he was by himself. He didn't have any entourage. It was just just him all alone. What was he doing? He was just digging through people's drawers, and we just oh. we would see him. We would see him every once in a while. And um, and the funniest thing was that uh, so we it, it, it and it was like oh I don't know what he's doing, but whatever. Okay, fine. And then the next day we'd come in. So we would go to breakfast at like seven thirty, and then we would eat which was our dinner. And then we'd go home and then we'd go to sleep for the night. And then we would come in at dinner time. So like at, you know, four 30 or four 45, the bus would pick us up and then we come into the property and people would be running around all crazy. And like, like obviously something had happened during the day. And, uh, it'd be like, Oh, we gotta, we gotta muster real quick and get back to, to cleaning in our spaces and be like, Oh, what happened? It's like, Oh, COB, which is what everybody called David Miscavige for uh, chairman COB. of the board chairman of the board was doing an inspection in one of the offices and he found some shoes in somebody's drawer, desk drawer, you know? And so what he would do is he'd walk into your space at like, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon when he would wake up uh, uh, as well, he would be up all night and then he'd, he'd uh, eat, he'd eat, eat lunch. And then, uh, then he'd kind of one or two is when he kind of hit the beat and go out into, you know, the property. Right. And uh, he was going into somebody's office and he would walk into your office and there might be 20, let's just say there's 20 cubicles in your area. And he would go to the one drawer that would have something you weren't supposed to have in it, like a pair of fucking stinky shoes or, you know, whatever he found this day. And uh, so there'd be 20 cubicles that had three or four uh, drawers each and he would magically pick the exact drawer wow. and the offending wow. items in it. And so everybody thought he had these, uh, you know, Scientology powers. Cause OT powers. Yeah, because he wouldn't pick any other drawers. He'd always just go to the exact perfect one. Wow. And then maybe if he went to a second one, it also would have something in it. And so it was always like this, this it was kind of a weird thing. It would happen all the time. And so, but as soon as we heard about this, we were like, that motherfucker was digging through the drawers the night before. <laughs> so he's basically setting up, he's setting up his marks the night before. And, uh, and he's totally stacking the deck. So the next day when he walks in, the chances, you know, whoever shoes those were are going to move them in a few hours is, is very minimal. So it's almost, it's a sure thing. He's going to walk in. Everyone's going, yes, sir. No, sir. Is there anything in here I, I shouldn't find? No, sir. Everything's boosh. Oh, stinky shoes in your, in your desk drawer. You're busted. You're all filthy animals, you know? And you're just like, but so, so when that happened that one day, it was kind of like, oh, I get it. I know what he was doing last night. He was digging through the drawers. So, like, so in Florida, I could totally see him doing the same thing. He's going to go over there in the middle of the night and he's walking around uh, the Fort Harrison or the superpower building or whatever. Everyone's going to be a little extra on their toes if he's there. Yeah. yeah. And that's the other thing about Flag. And he would always brag about this. He would, because Flag used to make, this is in the 90s and the early 2000s, Flag would make about a million bucks a week. Yeah. Every week, they would make about a million bucks. Maybe it's a little lower, maybe it's a little higher, but they'd make they'd make a million bucks a week, no matter what. Dave would brag that when he went down there, they'd make two to three million. So well, he's got just, the touch. 
<laughs> just him going there yeah. he is enough for those people to be like, oop, you know, the pucker factor goes up by double. Well, so, let me, you know, you, you absolutely nailed it when you described the effect that the Beatles moment he's having. In fact, let me read from you from the latest Source magazine. I'm going to be putting this out, I think, the same day this podcast comes out. Uh, let me just read from you a paragraph from Source about Dave showing up, not at the birthday event, they expected that, but a week later at a Friday event. It said, or it said a few weeks later, a few weeks later, as if to underscore our status as the center of the Scientology universe, chairman of the board, RTC, Mr. David Miscavige, made an encore appearance at the Flag Auditorium. As he walked on stage, the graduation audience was on its feet for a prolonged standing ovation. The, exactly. thunder, the thunderous applause reverberating throughout the auditorium. When he finally settled the audience down, Mr. Miscavige said, Why am I here? I guess the main reason is I just wanted to see you. And with that, the crowd was back on its feet, unable to contain their excitement at being in the right place at the right time. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Who who would refer to their their boss or their pope as like a, a providing an encore appearance? Yeah. I mean literally that is that's literally a that's something you'd say about the Beatles. They had an encore appearance, a encore appearance. Yeah. That's so it's just odd. And you know Dave probably wrote that. Oh, of course. <laughs> He probably wrote the thing about him and how people, the th what did you say? The thunderous applause. <laughs> I mean, that literally is totally 100% a Dave thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, that totally could be like, I would say that would be one of the main reasons just because people, people don't hate him there. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good point. Like, where should I go? I should probably go somewhere where people don't hate me. And that was another thing at the Ent base. He, whether he genuinely thought it or not, I mean, who knows, but he would constantly um, accuse us of trying to kill him. Wow. Like, that was a normal thing for David Miscavige to be like, um, if you guys haven't killed me yet. Like... He would he wouldn't even if you in a conference room on a property that only had SeaWorld members on it. There wasn't there wasn't I mean the UPS guy would drive onto the property or the or the trash guy to empty some dumpsters. But for the most part, I would say 99% of the personnel there were SeaWorld members. Billion year contract, we're here for life SeaWorld members and he wouldn't drink a water bottle that had the cap opened. Yeah. Because we would have poisoned it, obviously. And and if it was opened, it had to have like saran wrap over it or something that he could see if somebody had, you know, spiked it or, you know, somebody. Well, then, like, and then you can understand like why. roofing Miscavige at the Ant Base. Like I, I was, it's kind of like, I would try to think through like, what would we do to his water? You know, like, oh, we could poison it, but then you know, he would die and then there'd probably be an investigation. It's just like, how, how does this play out? Like, does he really think one of us would try to kill him? 
at a meeting? <laughs> well, I, and I guess that's that's why you end up with something like the hole. Is that he's just sure that they're all going to do something, so we put them all in prison. Yeah. Well, the best part is that um, you you're thinking like, why would he do that? But at the same time, you're thinking, oh yeah, he he has tortured a lot of us for many many years. So, I mean, if there's one person we're going to have to do it to, it would be him. So it would, it would be like, kind of like, yeah, I could see that really, you know, like if you think about it long enough, you're like, yeah, I guess. I mean, maybe somebody, maybe he's pushed, I mean, he pushed a lot of us pretty hard, but he might've pushed one of us a little harder than the rest, you know? But uh, yeah, that's a, I, I'm trying to think of their, I can't remember what it was. Somebody was talking about the the people who left and how, like Scientology, they always pretend they're the, they're so awesome and they're you know their shit doesn't stink and all this other stuff. But anybody who's worked there, the scum of the earth, like the absolute scum of the earth. Anyone who's worked in Scientology as an executive, um, Scientology can't uh, can't you know badmouth them quick enough. Like, oh yeah, no, that person was horrible. They did this, they did that. Right, they were, right. You know, they they were responsible for all sorts of atrocities that occurred, and and you're like, but uh, but but you guys are awesome, pretty much all the time. But, yeah. But not any of your executives. Those guys are bad news, you know. Well, flag is an interesting place for him to be doing that because, um, as you say, that people don't hate him as much there. But also because it's a flag is is an intersection between the Sea Org and the wealthy publics who are coming to uh, get their upper level stuff. That's not the case at Base. At Flag, you've got these wealthy whales that are coming in from all over the world uh, to be fleeced, basically. And um, he's he he's increasingly taking on this role of charismatic leader and this is one thing i think mike has done a really good job with at his blog is looking at the way gradually over time miscavige is trying to take on some of the uh valence i'll use a scientology word uh dave is trying to take on the valence of lrh in some ways what do you think about that um I think I think that might be that might be pretty accurate. I mean, the thing the thing that's kind of weird about that to me is that when we were when I was there as a Sea Org member, the Sea Org members were the top. Like in Scientology, you can't get better than a Sea Org member. The people that were public or these people that pay for Scientology um, were were kind of looked down on. Like they can only pay and do service training or, or, or auditing counseling. Um, they haven't stepped up to kind of like dedicate themselves to, you know, their lives to Scientology. So it's kind of like, eh. and a lot of these people were paying back in those days in the nineties. If, if, if somebody wrote a check for 300,000, like one time Kirstie Alley was um, they hit her up. Uh, this guy named Jeff Pomerantz who did all the uh, voiceovers for Scientology. He made this little silly video and he basically asked Kirsty if she could donate some money for Narconon for this drug Scientology drug rehabilitation, like front group that they run. 
And she ended up writing a check for 300,000. And that was just like, people were losing their minds. that She had written a check to Narconon for 300,000 and that she had become the international spokesperson. Like that check basically solidified her as being the spokesperson, spokesperson for Narconon, like celebrity spokesperson. Right. But, uh, but now, and even that was sort of like, okay, you could do that for Narconon or you could do that for the way to happiness. You could donate money like that. But for Scientology, the only way you get to the top in Scientology is through training and processing. And you have to get to the top of the, the grade charter, the bridge to total freedom to kind of increase your status. And that was kind of the, that was the company line. You, you can donate to one of these front groups or you could donate to authored services for some paintings or some leather bound L. Ron Hubbard books or something like that. They had all kinds of gimmicks that you could pay for stuff. And then in the late 90s, early 2000s, I think David Miscavige was like, we are doing so much work and we're trying to make all this stuff for people to buy. And it just was like, give me $10 million. Yeah, just give me the cash. Yeah. Just give me the cash. And – and, and when they started doing it, I think he, he was literally like, oh, we've been going about this all wrong. We just need to tell them to give us the money. Like, stop making stuff they can buy. And no, just give us your money. Just give us the money. And that was – and really at the end of the day, there are a lot, there's a lot of L. Ron Hubbard policies that say no matter what, don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Like don't ever do that. Don't ever – Fundraising is not something you should do. You should, if you're going to do something, get something and give them, get that something that you can make, give that to them and take money for that. So there's, and, and Hubbard is really big about exchange. Yeah. If you want something, you have to do something. If you want to give somebody something that's worth some money, then you can get some money and everybody is in exchange or, um, or even, if somebody pays you for a diamond, don't only give them a diamond, give them a blue diamond. Or, you know, like Hubbard was like, you got to go over the top when you give them something they paid for. So, so I get that he could be kind of like the persona or kind of take on like an L. Ron Hubbard type of interfacing with the public kind of thing. But, um, but the way he does things is very anti. Uh, Hubbard and also that he'd just been revising and deleting and changing shit that Hubbard's written for, you know, like the last 30, 40 years. That's also just kind of like a big red flag. Yeah. I mean, he's he's not exactly, um, he's not exactly following in the old man's footsteps and get, don't get me wrong. Um, he might in terms of kind of maximizing on what and capitalizing on what Hubbard laid down. He's pretty, you know, he's doing pretty good in that department. Um, but he's totally um, like Hubbard. He's getting to be like more hu- like Hubbard in the reclusiveness sort of thing um, because he can't really go anywhere right now. You know, because- what? that's what I was going to ask you is that, OK, so he's got this. Even if he's got really nice digs at the flag yeah. building, even if he can walk across the air bridge anytime he wants for the fine dining at the Fort Harrison or walking in for his Beatle uh, moment. And even if his best buddy, Tom has got his penthouse, just a five minute walk away. Uh, he's still, he's still a prisoner, right? He can't just go out to a nice restaurant somewhere. Can he? He can't because 
basically, and this might have been actually what happened with Hubbard, but because we didn't have the internet back then, you know, nobody really knows what was going on. We know from, you know, Freedom of Information Act and stuff like that. We know the feds were definitely trying to like find out where Hubbard was like on a continual basis. Um, So we know that. Um, But now what you have is we don't know what the feds are are up to in terms of Miscavige, but um, but there's a lot of people suing Scientology right now. That seems to be like a, a pretty regular occurrence and um, and no one can ever serve David Miscavige. So we know that Scientology and David Miscavige are hyper aware of this because otherwise he'd get served. I mean, people people get served all the time, especially people that don't want to get served. They get served eventually, most of the time. Um, so I could totally see Dave like having to always think about that. Like if I'm going to this event, I, he's got to have several, I I would think he's got to have several layers of sort of barriers between him and the general public, because any one of those people could be the one that's just like, Oh, Mr. Miscavige. Nice to meet you. Oh yeah. Thank you. Boosh. You've been served, you know, like, so yeah, he's got a nice dig. He's got nice digs in Clearwater. Um, and probably it might as well still be in the middle of COVID. Like you can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. You can't go out with people. You can't. I mean, when we were, I was in, I was at Flag in Clearwater in 1995. And I was putting some new stuff in one of David Miscavige, new audio equipment in one of David Miscavige offices. And, um, and he was going bowling on the weekends and he was going to the, oh yeah, he was going bowling. Like he and a bunch of like his entourage and maybe a few of like whoever his, um, favorite people at the CMO. Oh, there's a guy, his name is, um, Mark Ginga Nelson. And he used to be kind of like the, uh, Johnny on the spot, uh, for Dave and the CMO down in Clearwater. And he's one of the guys that get to go bowling. With Dave. Well, he's also the one who ended up licking the bathroom floor. That's right, which is kind of funny. Like, here's a guy who in the 95 was just like, you know, he was one of Dave's uh, trusted, you know, go-to guys. If Dave asked him for something, he'd get it done. And then fast forward, you know, 10 years and and he's licking uh, he's licking bathroom floors at the base. According like, to uh, according to <laughs> Debbie Cook in her court yeah. testimony uh, 10 years yeah. ago, she was describing the hole and the, the terrible conditions in the hole. And she said that back at ASI, Mark Gingham Nielsen had expressed some concern about that. You know, she, you know, we're keeping these people in this, you know, the hole, we're keeping them in this office and they don't really have any freedoms or blah, 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 whatever. He apparently sounded some note of compassion and which you never do. Which you That's never it. do, right. Never do that. Never care about anything. And if you do, certainly don't make the words come out of your mouth that you do that. <laughs> and so Debbie Cook's testimony was that at the ASI, ASI is this building on Hollywood Boulevard. It's uh, L. Ron Hubbard's literary 
agency. And this is where this meeting had apparently gone down where Mark Inga Nilsson had expressed some concern that he was then marched into the bathroom and ordered to lick the floor for a half hour. Yeah. Now that's, uh, that's her testimony. That's her sworn court testimony from a Texas. Yeah. I was there. I can tell you, she said, I would, that. I would <laughs> normally, I would say that's horrible. I don't know how you could believe that, but if it's Scientology and something to do with day, that's like, yeah, that totally happened. I would not like, if I was a betting person, I'd totally bet money that that happened. Like, oh yeah, absolutely. And that now, and now marking, now marking and Nielsen has been named in this new labor trafficking lawsuit, not as a defendant, but as uh, somebody who was uh, Valeska Paris has alleged was, you know, punishing. She, he, she claimed that he punished her because she dared to um, come forward with allegations that she was being sexually harassed. And uh, that, that, that in Scientology, if you're a woman and you have been sexually molested or harassed, if you say anything about it, you're the one who's going to be punished. That's the point she wanted to make. And she's alleging yeah. that that was done by this marking and Nielsen and some other people. Uh, and uh, we're, we're still waiting to see what Scientology says on that lawsuit. It was filed uh, a couple of months ago, but the judge gave the Scientology side a little extra time. Uh, they're going to be uh, answering in, in another couple of weeks. So we'll see. That's going to be very interesting. Yeah. You know, that, that, that thing about you saying uh, anyone who's harassed like that, um, there was a girl at the Int base, um, a Sea Org member, who would go to see her daughter. Or yeah, was it her daughter? Might have been her son. I can't remember. I think it, she might have had a son. Um, she would go see the son at uh, the facility near the Int base, which called was called the ranch at the time. It was about twenty minutes, twenty minute, fifteen twenty minute drive from the property. Well, she had missed whatever person was going to give her a ride or. Um, whatever, however she was going to get there, she missed it. And there was a river that ran along the Int base property. And that river pretty much went all the way to where the ranch was. And so she just walked down the riverbed, which could probably take a few hours, maybe an hour or two at least. Anyway, when she was walking down the riverbed, somebody driving by on a motorcycle, motorcycle stopped, um, raped her, and then just kept going. Just oh, my God. Yeah, it was horrible. Anyway, she got in trouble because she had been raped. Oh. So there was no investigation. It was like, not, we're not like trying to hunt this da guy down. It was just like, how stupid are you that you walked down the riverbed and got raped now? And she had to do like, I don't know if she got like a, a justice action, which is like called a committee of evidence or kind of like a court martial in the C organization. But I'm pretty sure she had to do uh, low, lowered conditions, which is kind of like the, it's like a heavy hand slap, but um, but it's definitely a pain in the ass and it's definitely punishment. No, no doubt about that. Um, but she had to do lowered conditions because she got raped. And no one, no one, it wasn't like broad public information that it happened because I was an executive at the time. Um, I had heard about it and I was just like, Jesus. And it's like, yeah, she's in trouble. Even to me, I was like, she's in trouble. Like. Well, that's, that's, sort, of that's, like, that's, that's sort of like, it, and it wasn't a Scientologist who did it. So that's the, that's my point. She got in trouble. This was just some random person that was driving by that decided to rape her. If it was a Scientologist, it probably would have even been more her fault. 
That's a good because point. in Scientology, uh, if it's a rapist and the rapist is a Scientologist, you know, they really go to town for that person. Well, and that's that's central to the um, litigation that's going on around Danny Masterson is that these women are saying that they knew that about Scientology. They were Scientologists themselves at the time, and they knew that if they came forward with allegations, not just that a Scientologist had raped them, but a celebrity Scientologist, that that yeah, they, that, that's true. That that that's a whole nother level. Yeah. There was a guy up in. Hmm. I want to say it was in San Francisco, somewhere up in Northern California. And there was a girl that worked there. Yep. I know the case you're she, talking about. Yeah. And she, and her, and her husband started protesting the org. And yes. Causing them a whole bunch of trouble. And the guy that raped her, I want to say he was like a supervisor or he was a staff member at yes. the organization. Yes. And, um, and they defended him to the bitter end. And, um, and I think they ended up settling. I want to say they ended up settling with the girl um, that got assaulted. But um, but this guy was just a supervisor. He was just like a uh, – uh, His name who, His name was Gabriel Williams. He, yes, uh, he, right, he, he was charged uh, with uh, – he was convicted of sexual battery and sodomy. Um, and she was a minor. Um, yeah, she was like – I want to say she was like 16 or – uh, maybe even 15 or 14. She was definitely a kid when this happened. Yeah. And then, and then um, her husband, Tom Gorman is the guy you're referring to that he yes, was, Tommy. He, he did some amazing uh, pickets outside of the San Francisco org uh, about this and uh, really was wanted to keep the people, make people aware of what had gone on. Yeah. That's a, yeah, but 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 to your point, he was just a staff member. He he wasn't uh, right. He wasn't famous. He was he was didn't have a TV show. He nothing. So imagine if they're going to defend that guy, and you know shut this, try to shut this poor girl down. Then uh, yeah, Danny Masterson. That's a whole new level of insanity. Yeah, and. Uh... <sighs> You said something I want to go back to because it caught my attention. And when you were talking about this woman who'd been raped and and she was punished for it, and that you said, I mean, here you are, you're an int base employee, you're Sea Org, you signed your billionaire contract, you're working for Scientology day and night, that even to you, it appeared something was wrong with that woman being punished. And that's that's really interesting to me because that's another thing I wanted to ask you about today. Is that you know David Miscavige is coming out and and getting greeted by the crowd at the Fort Harrison, he's being treated like a rock star, but they these publics and these even these staffers and CEO people don't they ha- don't they at some point doesn't it dawn on them that things are not working that all these ideal orgs are empty, I mean what does it take Mark before you kind of start to wake up and notice that what all the stuff Miscavige is saying just cannot be true. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, at the end base, we were we kind of got to see behind the curtain because we're seeing the numbers. We don't get to see the orgs really that much because you're at the end base. So you don't, you're not at Cincinnati. You're not at the New York org. But we see the numbers coming in. And the numbers say that Scientology is 
infatuated with statistics and keeping track of every single little person who comes into an org. Do they go on a service? Do they pay money? Like every single possible aspect of, uh, of what's happening at every single organization and all of these add up and they're called uh, the international statistics and the international statistics of Scientology have been going down since the 1990s. Yeah. So the amount of people in the organizations, the amount of money they're making, the amount of all these different things, even though they're getting millions of dollars from these individuals that are wealthy, um, that money is largely bypassing all the organizations and that whole infrastructure. So when you just give money to them, um, the organizations aren't getting a, a cut of that. So when the organizations, if they make 100K, um, they're supposed to cover their expenses and cover their bills. And then they sort of pass the rest of the check on to the next person, the next organization up the line. And eventually RTC and what's called the Church of Scientology International, CSI, they're getting the most major chunks of all these buckets of money that are coming in from everywhere. Um, and that's the way, that's the way kind of Hubbard designed the whole thing is so that from that hundred K that New York made, by the time it gets to RTC, there's nothing left. Yeah. So it, the whole thing got spent. No matter how much it is, the whole amount gets spent. And um, so when they when they do this thing where they just get a, a couple million bu- bucks from somebody, it skips that whole thing. So these organizations are really just these kind of like deserted islands. I think you, I part. think you're right, and that may be. Uh, and let let me give Miscavige his due. I mean Hubbard. Hubbard's vision, legacy, what he wanted to see done is sell a ton, sell a ton of books and make a lot of auditors, right? I mean, that was the kind of heart of what Hubbard believed would be the spread of Scientology. And I guess Miscavige knows that that just doesn't work. But what he's very good at is getting huge donations from wealthy people. And I know because I kind of keep track of this. And I will tell you that as the overall movement has shrunk and these ideologues have gone quiet, the number of people giving million dollar plus donations has actually increased in recent years. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing. So remember when I told you before that uh, flag would make a million bucks a week. Yeah. So the other part of that is that everybody else would make a million as well. So flag itself, the flag land base or FSO, really the flag service organization was the main, uh, you know, moneymaker in Florida, which is in that fort, which is pretty much that Fort Harrison building and uh, the Sandcastle, because that's pretty that's those are the two places where they were uh, doing things that would make money. So they would make a million dollars. If you took every other single organization in the world and added them all up, they'd also make a million. I see. So, so my, my point is, is that even if they made a million bucks a week, uh, that was flag. So flags, let's say flag pulls in 50 mil a year and then everybody else pulls in 50 mil a year. Then you're talking about 100 a million a year. 
David Miscavige is just like, forget all the nonsense. Just hit up. We just hit up 10 guys for 10 million and we're done. Yeah. That's it. Right, we right. just did it. We, yes. we did a whole year's work with no one, with, with some ASI people or some, you know, whoever his, uh, whoever the person is that, that actually talks to these guys. Right. And, and that's, so, and that's and why so he's it, got everybody on uh student hat and uh, yeah. a survival no run. One, student no one hat. cares that those don't make any money. That, <laughs> that was the other thing that was boggling, mind boggling to me is he's got these people that have done all the way up to OTA. They're on the student hat. I'm like, I'm pretty sure the student hat costs like $5,000. So there's probably not a lot of, overhead and uh not a lot of profit that's just sitting in that 5k and it's like what how huh oh and that's the other thing a lot of people don't know this so in the 1990s and all the way up until i left in 2005 um again back to the statistics so if somebody pays five thousand dollars for the student hat course and doesn't do it it goes into this bucket it's not a real bucket. It's a virtual bucket. But that $5,000 goes into a bucket that's called unused AP, which mm. is an unused advanced payment. I see. So you can't, you can't really, you're not, in Scientology, you're not supposed to spend the money out of that bucket. They always mm. do. You're not supposed to. Um, because at some point, that guy is going to come in he's going to do that course and you're going to then have to spend the money to deliver that course. Um, and every time somebody pays for something and doesn't do it, it goes into this advanced payments statistic. When I left in 2005, they had $1 billion in advanced payments. Incredible. So, so people paid for courses or people paid for auditing that they haven't done. And so David Miscavige's worst nightmare was that these people would all show up and be like, we're here to do our courses or our <sighs> auditing or whatever. Well, based on how much Scientology, like if we just use the metrics that I talked about, yeah. um, you're talking about $100 million a year uh, between FLAG and all the other orgs. So you're talking about... 10 years of no income. Like if I see if I everybody see. in Scientology just said, no, we're not paying anymore. We're just going to do what we're owed. Like we're going right. to do the services that we'd already paid for for 10 years. Scientology would have not a penny of income. And, and that's the, and that's the other part. Hubbard said, don't spend that bucket because when those people come in, when the, when the, when the chickens come to roost, we're going to need to be able to feed them and pay for, you know, all the things that have to do with, with delivering that billion dollars worth of things. So, so I another, think, in, in, to I distract them. Yeah. I think at Miscavige is just at a point where we got to get a billion dollars worth of reserves because they we're going to, it's sooner or later, we're going to have to deliver a billion dollars worth. No, of services but, but he's got them. them. He's got them too busy with these low level, nothing courses, student hat survival rundown. And, um, what's the third one that he's always got them. Uh, they got to work on. Well, the basics, um, no, there's a third one, but well, they the, call it the knowledge. Something and then he wants really them to come to flag for the L's and the, and the yeah. cause, cause resurgence rundown, which is running around a pole. 
is uh, you know it, he's just trying to keep them busy while he you know gets the big donations. It's 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 kind of amazing. Well, listen. Yeah. The the other thing. Well, go ahead. Well, listen. This has been uh, this is great. I I feel like we just scratched the surface. Your 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 anecdotes are always so wonderful, Mark. Um, but uh, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on with Scientology right now. There's some very interesting litigation. And I just love getting your perspective perspective on it because, you know, one of the things that comes through from your stories is Scientology doesn't change. What, you know, if you want to understand what Dave is doing today, you need to talk to somebody like Mark Headley about what Dave was doing 20 years ago because he has certain patterns, doesn't he? Yeah, he really does. They do. They are kind of they do have handcuffs on in terms of the. You know, Hubbard really did clearly say whatever he wrote can't really be changed. So David Miscavige has been able to kind of rewrite or edit things here and there over the years. But some of the things Hubbard said, everybody knows he said that. So it's it's a little hard to revise or to delete some of those things. And um, yeah, he's not. Really, Hubbard was not really fun, uh, fond of the government, law enforcement, um, politicians, uh, big big pharma, all these things. Not really a way for Scientology to kind of, you know, reverse their stance on those things. So it's true. Well, for now, for now, Dave is uh, getting his Beatles moment at the Fort Harrison. He's avoiding service. And uh, we'll see. It's always uh, fun to see what happens next. Mark Headley, thank you so much for being on the very first episode of the Underground Bunker Podcast. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, hey, don't forget to go to the spshop.com. If you want to support the uh, Aftermath Foundation, you can go directly to the aftermathfoundation.org. Um, we help people escape Scientology. And I'm, I'm assuming blown for good is still for sale. People have got, it's, it's yes, such a wonderful that's book. That's true. I'm, 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 uh, promoting the SP shop in the aftermath. And I almost forgot. I have a book yeah, it's called <laughs> blown, blown for good. You can get it on Amazon, audible, um, wherever you get your digital books. You there, there have been quite a few, uh, narratives written by people that have escaped Scientology. None of them is more entertaining than Blown for Good. You've got to pick uh, it up. You. It is so great. I appreciate it. All that. right, Mark. Thank you so much, man. I hope we get to talk to you again soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.